how many golfers do you know who have had 18 different putters and 18 different grips? They do the, the, the claw grip, they do a arm lock, they do whatever. And again, changing those, I wouldn't say it's a necessarily a bad thing, but again, you're not addressing it at the source. And the source is when score counts and you're standing over putt and you can either make it or miss it or blow it by or do whatever. When we are, are avoiding those possibilities, the physical skills get disrupted by our anxiety. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Mental Golf Show. As always, I'm your host, Josh Nichols, and welcome to part two of two, where Raymond Pryor and I are going to be tackling some common golf psychology myths. If you haven't listened to part one, it's a banger. We talked about myths and cliches like just be positive, why distracting yourself is actually unhelpful, how you can't just will the ball into the hole or make yourself focus, and it's impossible to just forget a bad shot. We also had a little bonus at the end talking about block versus random practice and how much you should be challenging yourself in practice. So I highly recommend listening to part one of Dispelling Common Golf Psychology Myths with Raymond Pryor. Uh, it was just released last week, uh, or if you're somewhere in the future, it was released right before this one. So uh, these two are amazing, but you got to listen to part one. It's it's so good. But on this episode, we're going to be hitting some more common myths and cliches about things like nerves and anxiety, perception versus reality, muscle memory, pre-shot routines, and a couple of inter interesting ones here. Alcohol for first tee anxiety, uh, something um, some of us have experience with, and the importance of sleep for golf um, and memory and learning. Um, really, really good stuff. And also, um, we took a deep dive into the yips, which, um, unfortunately it plagues a lot of players. Um, I, I posted something on Twitter and it got a lot of, um, a lot of feedback and, um, it seems like it's something that a lot of people struggle with. So it's not impossible to, to remedy and listening to this episode, uh, you're going to get some actual practical ways to to figure it out. So you may or may not want to bookmark this episode uh, for future uh, listening. So the time, sta time stamps for the episode are down in the show notes, uh, as always. So, all right, no introductions here. We're just going to get right into myth number four. Hope you enjoy. All right, cool. So the, the next one is nerves equal anxiety. And this is a big, um, I, I'm reading, like I said, your, the actual book that you sent me, the physical copy, which thank you, by the way, and thank you for that note at the beginning. That was uh, really kind. But um, something you tackle early on is the myth that nerves and anxiety are the same thing. So why, I hear it all the time, like, yeah, I'm, I was anxious. Well, are you sure that's what you were like? It sounds like you were just kind of excited and ready. So what's the difference there and why is it dangerous to equate nerves and anxiety? Yeah, this one, I think um, for golfers, especially there's a lot of uh, messages going around that like a little bit of anxiety is a good thing. Um, it's not. And this myth is particularly important because if you don't understand the difference between these two, um, you're not setting yourself up. To play the way that you want to so let's first let's define both and, and separate them and what makes them different mm. I'll start with nerves nerves are part of our physiological like 
evolutionarily ingrained response to stress. Stress can be defined not as anxiety. Stress is I'm in a situation where there are competitive constraints, meaning score counts, or there's something on the line that is important to me and it, it matters now, right? So that is I'm on the first tee and score counts for me, whether you're playing a round with your buddies where it doesn't really count but it counts for your handicap, it counts for the money game you're playing, et cetera. Or it might be I'm playing casual round, but I'm playing with people who might be making uh, opinions of me as I'm playing, et cetera, all the way to, well, I'm playing in a major and once you tee off, like that's it, man, score counts and you got to go play. So nerves is think of it like our fight, flight and freeze response. Okay. It is a cat and it comes from what is basically a cascade of physiological responses to when things matter to us. So where it starts with is our adrenaline glands release a stress hormone called cortisol. Now again, stress, not a bad thing. It's just a word about meaning we need to be able to do something when it's time to be able to do something. Um, Cortisol essentially goes to our brain and goes to the rest of our body and elicits like this physiological response that makes us more athletic, ready to run, fight, or perhaps hide. Okay. Where it starts with is it goes to our brain, which starts to get just get things moving. So now all of a sudden we have um, a high level of alertness to whether what's internal or external. But like we are in tune with what's going on as it's happening. Um, our heart rate is going to increase. Our breathing rate is going to increase. And the reason those increase is because all the blood that's in our digestive system and running our um, our internal organs and protecting our vital organs all starts to get pumped from our uh in turn from our abdomen out to our limbs so that we can actually run fight or freeze etc you know the feeling of blood moving from our abdomen out to our limbs is what's commonly known as butterflies in your stomach that's all that blood being pumped out very rapidly and it kind of gives you that tingly feeling inside that's nerves right so if we're talking about what it is psychologically it is us alert and focused with a urgency for the present moment what's happening right now on a neurological level what's important is because we are present with nerves or when we're nervous and we respond to them effectively we stay present and what happens when we are present is now we are in a neurological state where our brain waves are those low frequency low intensity brain waves that allow for freely executed skills on a neurochemical level, what it means is we are definitely moving on some adrenaline. Specifically, it's nor, uh, norepinephrine synthesized into adrenaline and high dopamine state. So what that's why it feels nerves. The difference between what we feel with nerves and anxiety is nerves. There's a sense of excitement, almost anticipation, like a sense of almost readiness for like, I want to do this. Like it's a high energy, high arousal state, but it's it's go time. This is why people enjoy being nervous. It's also why nerves are required for us to get into flow state most of the time, because we need that level of energy and alertness to kind of kind of drop us into flow state. Uh, we in flow state, you need enough energy and enough alertness to be uh, immersed in the task at hand as it's happening. So nerves, you must, like the analogy I use with my clients is it's the turbo button when you're playing video games, dude. Like when you're playing NBA Jam and you're on turbo, like you're more athletic, you can hit the ball farther, your focus is heightened, and what you're doing becomes more enjoyable because, again, it's a high dopamine state for us. And our brain is trying to get us to go get the thing 
that we are interested in. It's a seeking state of mind. Okay, so on a um, very fundamental level, nerves are helpful for us because they give us alertness and energy and focus to go pursue and seek what we want right now. Conversely, anxiety by definition is worry about the future. So it is not a present psychological state. It is a future projection psychological state. The another major difference between these two is what areas of the brain create them. Nerves are created by the fastest and strongest parts of our brain that are indeed survival driven, but also seeking driven for us to, it motivates us to go get the things we need to survive or in some ways thrive, like go get food, et cetera, find food and water to go seek the resources we need or the things that are important to us when they are important to us. So that part of our brain doesn't have a lot of subjective areas to it. Like it doesn't see things as good or bad, right or wrong, threatening or non-threatening. It just sees them as important enough to either go seek or to avoid. So nerves are created by the fastest, strongest parts of our brain. Anxiety, in contrast, is created by the slowest, weakest, rational, conscious thinking parts of our brain, specifically our prefrontal cortex. What happens is it starts to go, oh, there's important things at stake here. And if it starts playing out all these worst case scenarios or don't let this happen or what if this happens and what if this happens? And because we never actually know how the future is going to play out, even though sometimes we feel like we do, it cannot ever get to a point where it creates certainty. And when it plays out enough of those scenarios or goes, this was just like the last time we were here and it was a disaster. And this is definitely going to be a disaster, meaning it associates past problems with future problems that don't actually exist yet. It plays out all of these scenarios again and again and again to the point where the fastest, strongest parts of our brain go, uh-oh, we've got problems. Nerves aren't enough. We need anxiety too, to the point where it actually shuts our prefrontal cortex off. So what happens when we are super frustrated, we are anxious, we are angry, we are enraged, etc. The part of our brain that, that can think rationally, can think logically, that can think consciously about here's what I'm doing, here's how I want to do it, it's not online, which is why it makes it harder for us to be able to play freely. And so what happens is you would think the rational, logical thinking parts of our brain would pop a time out and be like, I can't figure out what the future is doing. And the way that I'm projecting it makes it seem super terrible. I'll just pop a time out and stop. But it doesn't. It just keeps going until the parts of our brain that are stronger and faster just shut it off. And then what happens is now we're just running on basically on a psychological level. We are preoccupied with the future and we are projecting it in a way that is threatening enough that it shows our brain you definitely need to avoid what might happen, regardless of how small the possibility of that might be. Mm. Then the second part is on a neurochemical level or a neurological level, we are on these high frequency and high intensity brainwaves. Again, because we are either dwelling on past events and replaying them or projecting future events in a threatening way, meaning we are now multitasking with two or three time frames. We have to think about the present because we're in it. We don't have a choice not to. But now our anxiety has brought in so much of the future and however many infinite possibilities is playing out in a threatening way that the brain activity is just off the charts, crazy intense and crazy high frequency. On another difference between nerves and anxiety is on a neurochemical level, anxiety is just adrenaline. There's no dopamine involved. It's a low dopamine state, which means that's going to make it feel worse. 
and it's going to make it feel like it's a whole lot longer. And here we see why when people are anxious, they typically hit shots to get them over with as fast as possible and get out of their discomfort rather than playing those shots freely and trying to play them as well as they can. So oftentimes when we are nervous, we feel elevated like, man, I'm excited to hit this shot, but because we're present and compo more composed, we're able to swing more freely and we're more athletic, which means the likelihood of hitting good shots is higher. When we are anxious, we are now multitasking with avoidance in a neuro brainwave state that is disrupting our ability to do so. And we are in full on defense mode of what we don't want to happen, fueled by adrenaline, which makes things feel worse and feel a whole lot longer. So we are much more likely to try to hit that shot just to get it over with and get it out of the way. And it doesn't take a, a neuroscientist or a psychologist to figure out that's a pretty low percentage way to play a shot in terms of trying to get the outcome that you're actually looking for. And it also just makes golf less enjoyable. Mm. Uh, so the fundamental difference between nerves and anxiety is anxiety is harmful because it creates alertness and energy to avoid what we don't want to happen, which in a thriving-based setting, not survival, but thriving-based setting, doesn't help us execute our skills better and more, more freely, and it makes the experience less enjoyable. So the danger with this myth that a little bit of anxiety is a good thing or that nerves and anxiety are the same thing is not helpful. The analogy I use uh, in the book is that calling anxiety and nerves the same thing is like calling a pull hook and a tight draw the same thing. They are not. <laughs> Sometimes nerves feel similar to anxiety because that adrenaline is going to create that physiological arousal. But one is arousal for the present moment and in pursuit the other is arousal for the, a fear-based arousal for the future that is all about avoidance. Mm. And it take again, a psychologist to figure out those two things move you in two different directions and create a totally different ability, uh, totally different access to whatever current ability that you have. Okay. So the way you said, get it over with that brings to mind, like the yips, is that, Correct. is that something, is this, is this where the yips come in? Correct. So the yips is essentially this trap loop of I need to hit a good shot to prove that I can hit a good shot. And it becomes an anxiety provoking experience because of course we don't want to yip. But then if I see yipping as something that is totally unacceptable, then when I'm not going to be nervous over a difficult chip or putt, I'm going to be anxious. And then I'm far more likely to hit that shot trying to get it over with. And if you do that long enough, your brain starts to perceive those shots as such a threatening event that it will, I mean, those physical jerky motions are your nervous system trying to get you to hit that thing and get on to the next moment as fast as possible because it perceives the moment you're in to be so uncomfortable and so threatening that it is far better to get it over with as fast as possible, not to do it as well as possible. And then, of course, if you look at the brain activity and the neurochemical combination, it's not a surprise why that happens. If I told you your brain waves are crazy high intensity and high frequency, and you're just running on adrenaline with no dopamine whatsoever, and you're facing this difficult shot, it is not a surprise while your brain and body will involuntarily jerk you to that thing, and you're probably going to chunk it or blade it or, or miss it altogether or shank it, because it doesn't care where, how well you play that shot. It only cares that you get it over with as soon as possible, and then it just keeps the habit going because your brain gets the reinforcement that it thinks it's getting, which is here's a threatening event that you have told me is full on worth anxiety and avoidance. I hit you with that anxiety and avoidance. 
and it's over with sooner, you're welcome. <laughs> and so the remedy to the yips at the source is acceptance of all possible outcomes, acceptance of all possible thoughts and feelings related to it, and not being in a rush to get that thing over with as fast as possible. Um, and the bottom line is that it can get pretty uh, sticky for some people as well. The remedy to the yips is what's called radical acceptance, meaning I accept the possibility that I might yip forever, which you probably won't, but it is a possibility. I accept that. I accept how embarrassing it is. I accept how awful it feels standing over the shot. I accept how awful it will feel if I yip another one. I accept the fact that I might blade it. I accept the fact that I might chunk it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you do that, essentially, if you're saying all of these terrible things that I don't like are acceptable, your brain stops perceiving them as threats. And if it stops perceiving them as threats, it doesn't feel the need to multitask with avoidance. And then it's actually open to pursuing the shot that you really want to hit. One thing I would encourage anyone who's listening, if you are experiencing the ips, wrapping your head around the idea of full-blown acceptance of all possibilities and keeping in mind that if you are trying to fix the yips with technique, you're addressing the symptom, not the cause. Remember, our physical motions and physical technique are disrupted by anxiety. So if you don't address the anxiety, there's no amount of physical skills that, or physical um, manipulation that can fix anxiety or by fix, I mean, address it at the source. And if you continue to do that, your technique is going to change. But when you are in situations where a yip is possible, the anxiety, you're not dealing with the anxiety, which is the root cause. Mm -hmm. And changing putters, changing grips, changing this, changing that, addressing symptom, not root cause. Yeah. And by the way, to a degree that can be helpful because essentially what you're changing, like if you change your grip or change putter, it looks different and feels different to your nervous system. And therefore it might think for a while, oh, this is different. Meaning it doesn't need to trigger anxiety. Mm, it's not a threat. What's triggering the anxiety is not your grip and your vision to a degree. It's the situation you're in, which is if I make this, it's helpful. If I miss, I don't. And that trigger cannot be avoided. That's what playing golf is. If you hit a shot, it can go places that are harmful for our scorecard. And it can go places where it's very helpful for a scorecard. And if results matter to you, which they do for most golfers, changing your grip and changing uh, the putter itself, are you're trying to manipulate the trigger for your anxiety, not dealing with the anxiety at the source. Now, again, it can be helpful in the short term, but in the long term, it's a bit of a distraction strategy. And I would also say, oftentimes when you're doing that, you are exchanging a putter that works better for you and a grip that works better for you for ones that don't. In which case, then you are addressing the trigger, not the cause of your anxiety, and you are compromising equipment and a skill that might be better served for you. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's that's hitting it close to home because I know some guys and they've tried it all. So that's that's good. Keep changing putters and keep changing grips and go to like how many golfers do you know who have had eighteen different putters and eighteen different grips? They do the the claw grip, they do a arm lock, they do whatever. And again, changing those isn't really, I wouldn't say it's a necessarily a bad thing, but again, you're not addressing it at the source. And the source is when score counts and you're standing over putt and you can either make it or miss it or blow it by or do whatever. When we are, are avoiding those possibilities, the physical skills get disrupted by our anxiety. And so if you want to execute more freely, 
manipulating the triggers in the environment that can't either can't be manipulated because that's what you're signing up for or trying to halfway do it indirectly do it by changing the putter or the grip you're not addressing it at the source which is your relationship with um your anxiety Mm. okay awesome really really good okay so let's uh because i want to get to alcohol and sleep because i think those are um interesting things that we don't normally talk about and hear about on a on a golf podcast so well we might hear the clinking of the ice in the glass on a golf podcast, but not addressed in a psychology way. Right. Okay. So perception equals reality. What do you mean by that? What's the myth there? What's, what's going on with that one? Yeah. So the myth is just that perception is reality, meaning what you feel is happening, what you think is happening is indeed what is happening. So on a psychological and kind of neurological level, um, what we perceive is just this subjective personal rendering of our reality based on what we believe to be true or feel is true um, and based on what we have trained our mind to perceive as meaningful. So what this means is in any given situation, even though our brain is this crazy fast, highly powerful supercomputer, in any given situation in our life, there's just too much information for it to process in real time which means we have beliefs, we have perceptions, we have um, different sensory experiences to try to filter out what isn't meaningful for us based on what we've kind of trained for it. So for example, if you have a habit of anxiety, what you have trained your brain to do is to find what's most meaningful, the future, right? If we train ourselves to be present, what we learn to perceive and what we learn to become true is that the most important information is happening right now right and again you could argue well the future is important or the present is important my contention would be the only moment we're actually physically living in is the one that we're in and therefore that one's probably the most important other people might disagree with that research shows us over and over again that people are happier healthier higher functioning human beings when what we perceive matches what's what's happening in our current reality okay So really what this means for us is it's really important for us to pay attention to our thoughts about things, our feelings about things, our beliefs about things, because they are not necessarily facts. Just because you believe something, perceive something, and feel that something is true doesn't mean that it is. Just because other people think it's true or important uh, doesn't mean that it is. Just because you believe something for a long time doesn't mean it's true. Just because you believe something very deeply and perceive it in a certain way also doesn't mean that it's true. And so if we're not paying attention to, well, how does what I'm perceiving match up with reality? Oftentimes that disparity becomes wider. And when that happens, what happens? We become less resilient and we be, and our confidence becomes less stable. And it's harder for us to focus on what is relevant to our performance as it's happening. So if we're really talking about this, perception does not necessarily equal truth. What in important for us as human beings is we can get better faster. We perform better under pressure and things are more enjoyable when we're dealing with things closer to truth. Human beings are innately subjective. So nobody's perception is going to match reality currently because there's, again, just too much reality for our perception to be able to manage all that. And we have subjective experiences. No human being has had the exact same path through life and golf. So they're going to vary. But if we pay attention to man, for example, a lot of golfers have told me, like, if I get off to a rough start, like, I just can't play well that day. 
that is a perception. That's a feeling that if I don't make a putt in the first couple of holes, that I'm just not going to make a putt all day. That is not the reality, right? And so what happens is if we start diving into our perceptions without chin checking them from time to time, we are creating rules and constrictions that don't necessarily exist. In the exact same way that if you're getting a golf lesson, you go, I feel like I'm delivering the club from the inside, but on the video, it's clearly coming over the top. If you don't address the reality, which is this is what's actually happening, it's much more difficult to get better and much more difficult for us to perform under pressure. So that myth, that perception is reality. No, your perception is what you are currently experiencing based on whatever framework your reality is coming through. It's kind of a bit of an existential way of saying it's important for us to chin check what we know and what we believe from time to time and reference that with what is actually factual. As just, you know, a more tangible example, player I was working with at the players last week, his thought was, I just felt like if I, I didn't putt perfectly, I was never going to be able to contend in this tournament. And I go, okay, well, let's look at the facts. And the fact of the matter is, Scotty Scheffler had a historically great ball striking week, a mediocre putting week by his standards and even by tour stand, like in, in relation to the field, not that great. So the idea that I perceive I have to putt great every week in order to be able to contend and compete, not reality. And so if I'm running off of my perception without chin checking it with reality, the reality and my expectations start to get farther and farther apart. And the farther and farther apart they are, the harder it is for me to close this gap. Right. Okay. That's, that's good. That's really good. So you said chin checking a few times. Is that like, hmm? Like this? <laughs> chin check. Would, yeah. Chin check is to challenge the idea, right? It's important for us as human beings to challenge our beliefs, to challenge our perceptions, to challenge the assumptions that we make and in reference to truth, because that's what helps us get better and also get stronger. Like our beliefs are not made stronger or we don't have uh, more conviction in them without challenging them, Right. And also what that does is it allows us to shed beliefs, perceptions, assumptions, and thoughts that aren't serving us very well. And this is important for us as humans because just because we believe something and it might have been helpful for us earlier in our life doesn't mean that it's helpful now. So, for example, if you believe when I get under pressure, I need to just force myself to feel relaxed. And now the truth of the matter is that's actually moving me farther away from what it is that I'm trying to do. If you don't challenge the idea that like, yeah, whenever I force myself to be relaxed, I tend to not be very relaxed, then it just kind of the cycles just keep perpetuating. Mm, okay. Got it. Okay. So next one, muscle memory. So the myth muscle memory, um, I've heard it a million times, especially in golf. I mean, it's just, it's, it's what everyone believes is true. So what's going on there? What's, what's up with muscle memory? Uh, well, what's up with it is it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> Really, really well-intentioned um, instruction, probably trying to get people to practice enough that they groove their skills. We can train muscles to be stronger, to be more flexible, to have more endurance, to be faster. Like there's a massive push in speed right now in the golf community. We cannot train them no matter what we do to remember things and just execute and uh, function on their own. What makes our muscles contract or not contract or move in a certain way is our brain. Muscles do not have neuroplastic ability. They don't have memory cells. They cannot execute things on their own. If they could, Josh, I could sever your spinal cord and you could still walk because your muscles have a lifetime for you of walking 
and they would remember how to do it. And they cannot do that because any command to our muscles has to come from our brain. That's the bottom line. Muscles cannot store, create, or access memories. Only our brain can do that. So the although it's well-intentioned, the limitation and the danger to this advice is that it makes it seem like if you just practice something enough, your muscles will just do it for you when you're under pressure or when it matters. And that is not the case. Your brain determines whether it gives that command and, by the way, also how it gives that command. So regardless of how much you practice, if you go to the first tee in a state of psychological anxiety, the command that your brain is going to give your body and your muscles about how to execute your first swing is going to be via avoidance, regardless of how many free swings that you have made on the driving range. Um, so this one is a little bit funky. Again, well-intentioned, probably trying to get people to practice well enough to groove skills. But the danger is if you're going into performance going, well, I've grooved it enough, it'll just execute itself when you get there in the way that I want to. That is not true. And which means that you've got to also address your psychology. There's no amount of just practice, 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 practice that is going to allow you to execute freely when skills uh, and the outcomes are important to you. We have to make that command. And what psychological state we bring to that is going to determine how our brain gives that command because it's the only thing that can give that command. So this brings to mind like your pre-shot routine and making it like you could put a clock on it. It would be the same every single time. And that's going to help remove any um, impediment to you, to your muscles doing that same exact like thing that you've grooved in. So, I mean, should we, should we pursue that? Like I could put my routine on a clock. Is that, is that helpful? Is it, is it irrelevant? Is that a myth? To a degree. So the research on pre-shot routines is mixed at best. There's some research that shows having a pre-shot routine timed down to the minute for some people or timed down to the second can be very helpful. And what it does is it kind of like, it creates this funnel where the closer I get to actually hitting a golf ball, what it does is it, the idea is to narrow my focus and prepare my body. And when it's time to execute the skill to go, there's also research that shows the more rigid you make your pre-shot routine, the more you have to have the same number of practice swings, you have to have the same number of steps into the ball. And if it doesn't fall on these exact seconds, that it becomes really disruptive to people because there's just not enough flexibility in it. I mean, the bottom line is not every shot you hit is going to have the same physical space. If you're in a bunker looking at a downhill lie and you don't have a ton of room to step into the ball, how are you supposed to take the same number of steps to get in there? Or what if a shot like it really is the margin for error for it to be successful is a lot smaller and you do need a chance to actually ground yourself before you get in there because you're making the choice to take on some risk at a certain point in your round that might quote unquote make or break it. Right. Or what if you've got a funky stance and a funky lie and you can't make practice swings in the exact same way that you want to. So where people decide their pre-shot routine starts varies greatly. What it needs to include can vary greatly. But ultimately, the whole purpose of a pre-shot routine is to help narrow your focus and prepare your body to execute your skill that when you say it's time to go, you go. Again, your muscles can't do that. And also, there's no pre-shot routine in the world that can turn off anxiety. And so if you're bringing anxiety to a shot, your pre-shot routine could be down to the second, down to the step, down to the whatever. You're still going to be executing your skills through a neurological and neurochemical state that doesn't allow for it to be done freely. 
you know, I was talking with a player recently where we go, well, Tiger, when he won the U.S. Open, whatever, his pre-shot routine was nine seconds or 11 seconds on the dot. I was like, that's true. So was the guy who missed the cut by eight strokes. <laughs> and he might have been better served having a little bit of flexibility in his pre-shot routine so that he was actually present when he was time to hit a shot. So the bottom line is pre-shot routines can be very helpful if we use them for what they are designed to do, which again is prepare your body, narrow your focus to hit a shot. It cannot create a psychological space that you haven't addressed larger in terms of like your ability to create stable confidence. And the other thing, like the more rigid it becomes for some people, oftentimes what happens is you go, oh, did I take that step the way I wanted to? Am I at six seconds? Am I at seven seconds? And now you're multitasking with your pre-shot routine, not paying attention to the shot that you actually want to hit. Mm. So for people, it's important to pay attention and probably have some variation of a pre-shot routine, but the idea that it needs to be just this rigid something and something that my muscles will just operate on their own, not true. Right. Okay. Awesome. Really good. Okay. So let's get into alcohol and we, um, I just went on a a golf trip with like 40 guys and needless to say, there was plenty of alcohol. Like we're getting to the course at 8am and I'm hearing cans crack in the parking lot. And a lot of that is, uh, the myth here is alcohol for first anxiety. A lot of it is like, I need to play better. I need to calm down, whether it's from what happened last night or whatever. Like I, I need this to relax myself. So why is that unhelpful? Why is alcohol for first day anxiety unhelpful? Because alcohol relaxes me in the evening. What What's going on on the first tee? Yeah. So the thing about this myth is, is that it, it both works and it doesn't work. So I will, before we even get into this, I'll say that many people, alcohol is part of their golf experience because they just want to enjoy a couple of drinks while they're playing golf. I have no problem with that whatsoever. What we'll really be addressing in this is like the people who are trying to, um, who are using it as a means to manage anxiety, particularly first tee is one of them. Um, so really those situations where people are trying to play as well as they can in, in alcohols, they're using alcohol as a means of performance enhancement, not just part of the golf experience. Because if your idea of playing golf is I play with my, friends, we have a couple of drinks, we relax, we hang out, good, good on you. No problem. Okay. <laughs> what we're really talking about again is like using it as a performance enhancer. So again, it's important to understand what alcohol is, how it works and why it works, but also what it does in the long term. So alcohol, um, think of it essentially as a sedative for our brain. It's a GABA inhibitor. GABA inhibitor. GABA is essentially a neurotransmitter our brain that runs kind of our uh, it's an important player in our brain our nervous system particularly our spinal cord um alcohol works if you drink it you will feel less anxious because when it inhibits gaba it's essentially inhibiting our inhibitions so our prefrontal cortex is the, the, the brake pedal of our brain it's the part of our brain that helps push against our inhibitions and our default, like kind of um, impulsive reactions, okay? alcohol goes to that part of our brain really quickly. And so remember, anxiety comes from our prefrontal cortex, not the deepest parts of our brain. So if I drink alcohol, it goes to my prefrontal cortex, it inhibits GABA, both the creation of it and the intake of it by our prefrontal cortex, and it will make you less anxious, and it will make you more extroverted. That's why people drink it, because it's gonna feel better, and you're going to have more fun. Hmm. And that introverts aren't fun, but 
we typically get a lot of energy. If you're playing a social game and you're more extroverted, you're going to have some more fun, especially first tee. So it works, but only as your blood alcohol level is rising. So, which is why you need more and more of it to create the same feeling of decreased anxiety and the same feeling of extroversion. So it's basically, it's a dopamine boost and a GABA decrease. And you add those two together and you're going to feel less anxious and you are going to be more extroverted. And you are going to be less anxious on the first tee. That is for sure. The downside is that alcohol does not discriminate, meaning it can go into every single cell of our body, including the other areas of our brain that operate motor function. And in a sport where the margin for error from hitting it in the middle of the club face to not is about the size of a dime on most clubs, you are exchanging anxiety for your ability to be able to execute your skills more efficiently. And some people might say, well, I will take that exchange. And I would say, okay up to you. <laughs> but what's also important about this is that the more you drink, the more it's going to inhibit your motor functioning. So yes, your anxiety is going to stay low, but then your motor functioning is going to decrease precipitously based on that. So add the more you drink, the less able you are to execute your skills. Even though you are doing it freely, your nervous system basically cannot keep up with the motor speed that you're trying to create. So this is why drinking and driving is illegal because it puts us prefrontal cortex wise. We are in a state of impulsivity, meaning we make really foolish decisions when we're operating machinery. And two, it starts to sedate our motor functioning. So not only are you more impulsive, you are less physically able to react in a timely manner. Okay. What's also really important to understand about alcohol is that when we use an external resource like alcohol, to regulate an internal state for us, we are making ourselves in the long run more anxious. So our overall level of anxiety when we drink alcohol in order to decrease anxiety goes up, which means every time I go to the first tea and I use alcohol to decrease my anxiety on the first tea, I'm increasing my overall level of anxiety, which means I need more alcohol to be able to do that. Hence, here's our tolerance, right? Mm. The second thing that that's doing is it's as it's increasing my overall level of anxiety in my life and in my performance in exchange for a short term first T benefit, I'm also lowering my threshold for what triggers my anxiety. So the anxiety level goes up, the threshold for what triggers that anxiety goes down. So I am creating a situation where essentially I am more anxious and what makes me anxious is fewer and fewer, sorry, more things at lower levels, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more we use external things to regulate an internal space, the less capable we become of being able to do that on our own. Hence why we need more of it and more of it and more of it. And it, so essentially it makes us feel worse as it's going. Mm. And then basically what happens is as I exchange it for the first T short-term benefits, I am becoming more impulsive and more easily agitated, and that is working at a higher level of anxiety overall. So you would need to drink more through your entire round of golf to maintain that decreased level of anxiety, again, at the cost of your motor functioning. Because as soon as that blood alcohol level starts to wear off, I'm going to start feeling worse, and I'm going to be more agitated by things. So I'm not telling anyone, don't drink while you're playing golf or before you play golf. But I am saying if you are using it on the first tee, 
to deal with your anxiety or nerves or whatever, you're doing it at a long-term cost that is going to cost you later. And then as we'll get into here in a second, one thing that people need to understand about alcohol is if you are drinking alcohol regularly, it's disrupting your sleep. And we need sleep to be able to learn and to regulate a whole variety of different functions. So again, there's a time and a place for drinking. I've got a boys trip, golf trip coming up. There's going to be plenty of drinking going on, myself included. (laughs) Um, But if you do that in performance realms where you're trying to actually use it as a performance enhancer, it's coming at a cost to your overall performance as well. Mm. And it probably, you have an an impeded perception or sense that like what's even working because I, I, I and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it's, it's, um, decreasing your ability to see what's even going on. Like it's, um, it's making things foggier. So it's like, this feels like it's working, but I can't tell if it's not working. Right. I can't tell if it's hurting me. It's going to work to decrease your anxiety as your blood alcohol level is increasing. But the more you drink, the more it blurs and it, it starts to sedate every other area area of your nervous system, which why, again, it comes at a, a larger cost if you're going to do it. And again, the more you drink, you're going to have to drink more alcohol to maintain that decreased anxiety and increased dopamine state. That's the extroversion in order to do that. And I mean, that means basically you're, you're drinking through your entire round of golf. If we are using as a performance enhancer and you might go, well, I just use it to get off the first tee and then I'm okay. But again, the downside is first it starts with a drink, but then again, you're building a tolerance to it. So now it's two and now it's three. And then again, you can't have more than one drink. Like as soon as you have a drink, your motor function is already disruptive. Like this is why, again, there's a level that we don't let people drive legally with because you're not good at driving when you have that much alcohol in your system. So again, Mm. this is not an ethical or, or moral, you should or shouldn't drink wagging the finger it's a performance and neurochemical and psychological conversation about if you're using an external means to regulate, which it works in the short term, that comes at a larger cost to our performance. So if you have first tea anxiety and you deal with it directly through internal means, you're then you don't need that alcohol to be able to do so. But again, for the people who are like, hey, man, I just like having some drinks while I play golf, knock yourself out. Just make sure you're not driving drunk. Right. Okay. And I can feel the listener just yelling at their, at their phone. Is this a reality on the tour? Like are our guys out there? Are you, are you free to even say this? But like, I know you're out there and you're seeing what's going on. I've heard of it. Um, I think it's, it would be very difficult to get away with. I'm not saying people don't, I haven't seen it on, but I have seen it at varying levels of competitive golf. And, and have certainly people said to me, this is what I do when I'm anxious on the first tee or to avoid it. And again, no judgment for me. You're probably coping in the best way that you know how. But there are more effective strategies that won't cost you your motor functioning and, and won't increase your overall anxiety and decrease your overall, overall threshold to agitation. Yeah. Okay. So I would say that if you don't, if your self-awareness and self-regulation, you haven't developed that yet, it's it's makes sense to me why you would turn to something that by the way like i said it works Mm -hmm. yeah um the is it just it just comes out of cost got it okay all right let's move on to the the final myth i don't need to sleep why i mean i've done it i've on that guy's trip i didn't sleep great because of the alcohol so it was a it was kind of a cycle why why is sleep so important for all of this well 
sleep is as important for us as anything we do in our waking hours. Um, sleep is a state where everything, every single biological system, physiological system, and psychological and emotional system in our body is rejuvenated, replenished, regulated, and course corrected as need be. Um, our brain does not function well without enough sleep. Our physical health is diminished significantly. Our immune health is diminished significantly. Um, I, I could just go along, like we could do a whole podcast on sleep mm -hmm. um, and the deleterious effects of sleep deprivation. And the bottom line is, is if you are interested in performing at a higher level, being a happier, healthier human, if you're not devoting eight hours to sleep every night and being consistent with it, it's going to be much harder to do that. Now, I do want to make sure to honor and acknowledge life demands are real, dude. The players I work with on the LPGA and PJ Tour, among other tours, college golf, like they are flying everywhere, traveling a bunch of different places, moving time zones. And the bottom line is sometimes they have to sacrifice sleep in order to meet the demands of their waking life. So that is a real thing. You would know that right now. You've got a five-month-old. Your sleep schedule is indeed disruptive, right? However, the bottom line is we all function better when we devote eight hours to sleep every single night uh, or as best we can. And we are functioning at a lower level when we don't, whether that's after a single night or whether that's a long term. And again, here's our perception versus reality. Many people perceive I'm just fine on six hours of sleep or less. The research shows us what you perceive about that or what we perceive, because I used to be in that bank too. When I was in grad school, I was like, man, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Mm. The reality of it is, no, it is not. The research basically shows us just a cascade of uh, negative effects when we are not sleeping well. Um, to quote some sleep science research, if you took the number of people who can actually function well, devoting less than six hours of sleep at night, and if you express them as a percent of the population and you rounded it to the nearest whole number, the number is zero. <laughs> so getting the devoting eight hours of sleep is really important. I'll just talk about like even just how it affects learning. For example, if you were to go get a golf lesson and let's say it was from the best instructor in the world and it was the best golf lesson of your life. If you were sleep deprived the night before and didn't sleep well enough, your brain doesn't have enough alertness and energy to release that acetylcholine that we talked about before to mark the areas of your brain during your lesson, which basically means you're not alert enough and focused enough to be able to learn. Even though you feel like you're in it, your brain's not running on enough, right? Then if you don't go sleep after that lesson, which by the way, our brain only makes neurological changes. Neuroplasticity is our brain's ability to change its neurological wiring based on our experiences, which is essentially saying when it learns, it rewires. That only happens when we sleep and we need enough sleep to make that happen because they don't all happen at once while we're sleeping. It happens through these cycles of our sleep. So if you had the best golf lesson of your life and you didn't sleep enough the night before and you don't sleep enough the night after that lesson is essentially a waste of time. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So this being said, there's a reason why all the players, many players on PJ and LPJ tour are all wearing some type of device that is measuring their sleep, their recovery, their heart rate, et cetera, because the science around the sleep and how it impacts our performance biologically, physiologically, psychologically, emotionally 
is indisputable. Mm. Bottom line is, is that when we are sleep deprived or not sleeping well enough, it comes at a cost to our health, our performance, etc. Mm. Okay. Right. Yeah. And in a bazillion, in a bazillion different ways, like I said, we could do a whole podcast on that. But this, the myth is, I don't need to sleep, or I only need to sleep a certain number amount. And again, the number of people who can actually get by on less than about six hours of sleep zero mm. statistically statistically zero so there are some but very few um and the more that you can prioritize your sleep everything in your waking life improves mm. okay so now i have two reasons to go take a nap one i have a five-month-old slept terrible last night two to commit everything we're talking about to memory and to learning right in fact if you had a golf lesson one of the best things you could do is to go take a 30-minute nap right afterwards whoa that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because basically what happens is when we, let's say you did a golf lesson or even let's say you played a great round of golf where you're like, man, I would love to just encode that and have that going uh, in the future. Bottle it up. Essentially a golf lesson is just information for our brain, like data. And when we sleep through, it basically it cuts through this information is important. This information is not important. This is where we're going to rewire and it does all that stuff. And if you follow up learning with sleep, so whether that's making sure you're getting a full night, but even just a short 30 minute nap after, or and by the way, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, I fell asleep and I had to wake up to an alarm, but even just down regulating and whether that's like mindfulness practice or just like, I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to close my eyes. I don't need to think through my lesson. I don't need, but just rest, even if you're not quite sleeping your brain is starting to wire in the ways that you just told it were important to wire. Wow. Right. A bunch of studies that basically show short naps after a practice, after a lesson, whether that's a music lesson or a golf lesson, et cetera, a classroom learning session, et cetera. There's about a 20 to 30% increase in learning for people who nap shortly thereafter. Whoa. Okay. Now don't nap through it. Nap after. <laughs> you definitely want to be present and focused in it. And by the way, composed, because if you're in a golf lesson and you're just super frustrated or super anxious, which I'm not telling people, don't be frustrated, don't be anxious, but understand that in those psychological states, learning is disrupted for us. Sure. Because our prefrontal cortex, again, not really online. So it's not encoding all that information that consciously that we are looking for. So essentially what happens is if I am in a composed state, basically meaning I am present with my current reality in my lesson and engaged with it as it's happening without wandering and projecting and dwelling on stuff, my brain is telling me this is important, this is important, this is important, highlight, highlight, highlight. And then when I go take a nap, it's already starting to rewire those areas that are highlighting. So it accelerates learning for us because we learn better during and then our brain rewires faster and more efficiently afterwards. Okay. Very cool. Neuroplastic changes only happen when we are in states of sleep or non-sleep deep rest, which, which is like a very calm, composed, down-regulated state. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. I didn't. I didn't know all that. That's um. That's really cool, and I know that's going to help everyone out there. So thank you, Doctor Pryor. This is um. This has been awesome. Probably going to be a couple episodes because this is uh, too much info. Uh, for, a lot. Yeah, this is. Uh, this we're gonna, is we're all going to need a nap after. <laughs> I definitely do. Okay, not not for uh, lack of excitement, but for like I need to learn um, and sleep on this. Okay, so thank you so much. Um, again, when does the book come out? What's it called? Uh, where can people go get it? 
Yeah, the book is called Golf Beneath the Surface. Actually, I think I have a Golf Beneath the Surface is the New Science of Golf Psychology. It comes out on May 9th, or at least that's when it's available. Um, but you can pre order it on Amazon now. Just search Golf Beneath the Surface and you'll find it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait for, we got a, we're going to do another episode in about a month. Um, and we're going to tackle some, maybe some more things about the book and look forward to that. So, um, yeah, awesome. Good stuff. Thanks for having me, Josh. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed yet another heater from Raymond Pryor. We've got a super smart audience, but in case you're like me, then you're probably going to need to listen through a few times to really grasp this stuff. Again, if you want to check out Raymond Pryor's book, Golf Beneath the Surface, uh, it's coming out soon. Uh, again, if you're in the future some at some point, it's already out. So the link to purchase it will be in the show notes. Uh, if you're listening between now and May 9th, 2023, uh, it'll be a pre-order. And after that, you can just go ahead and purchase it um, on Amazon or in a bookstore or, or whatever. Uh, I promise he hasn't paid me a dime to talk about it. It's just that good that I want everyone to read it. Plus, he's paid me in um, in being on the podcast several times now. And, and we actually have one coming in the future, so be on the lookout for that. And he's behind the scenes stuff, I, I'll shoot him texts about stuff and he gets back to me super quick. He's just, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge and, and very generous with his time. So it's the least I could do to, um, to talk about his book as often as possible. Uh, and, and I, as I always say at the end of these episodes, the information you hear in these is for general info purposes. If you need one-on-one work on your psychology, then I highly recommend working with someone like Dr. Pryor or myself. He's much, much more accomplished than me and works with uh, players that are much further along in their careers and, and uh, much more successful um, than me. So I hesitate to put myself in the same category as him, but he and I both specialize in this stuff. So it's our job to make sure that your relationship with the game and your own mind is as healthy as possible. So if you'd like to check out him, you can go to uh, to his website. The, the link will be in the show notes or check him out on Twitter. That link will be in the show notes. Or if you'd like to learn more about one-on-one coaching with myself, you can head to joshnicholsgolf.com or send an email to mentalgolfshow at gmail.com. I'm taking on new clients, so I'd love to work with you. All right. Thanks as always for listening to this episode of the Mental Golf Show. I'm Josh Nichols, and I will catch you guys in the next episode. Music.